another episode of filter on this show we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in and so what i seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom integrity and courage welcome back to this special two-part interview with professor nancy piercy to celebrate hitting 100 episodes here on filter if you missed part one i'd recommend going back to catch up however you'll still get a lot out of part two even if you don't go back and catch up in this second segment, we continue our discussion on her latest book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, exploring the roots of our cultural battle over masculinity, evaluating the voices and influences surrounding masculinity today, and discussing how churches can better engage men. Nancy Piercy is the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, as well as Love Thy Body, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and Total Truth. She is professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. She has been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek and highlighted as one of the top five women apologists by Christianity Today. Real quick, quickly, before we get into this episode, let me encourage you to, to subscribe to Filter wherever you get your podcast. Also, if you would leave us a rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, it would greatly help us out. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into part two of this great conversation with Nancy Piercy. But so, tell us about the history of... Uh, the uh, of what masculinity meant uh, and how it changed from uh, from earlier history through the Reformation colonial era, and then you spent a lot of time talking about how the Industrial Revolution changed family life, and then through this massive change came a difference in uh, understanding the role of men in masculinity. Yeah, I, I, that's uh, would be another one of my critiques of the book is that man, you, you got to go a lot further back than the Cold War. So I go back to the Industrial Revolution. So prior to the Industrial Revolution, families worked together, you know, on family farms and family industries. So a man was working alongside his wife and his children all day, and so obviously he had to have a, a much more caretaking attitude. You know, that was the exp the cultural expectations of manliness was much more geared towards you know working together with the people you love and have a moral bond with, right? So you know the, the uh, they were not only men were not only expected to be fathers of the families but fathers of the community was a common phrase. Um, duty to God and man, duty to God and man was yeah. another common phrase. So it the 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 expectations the cultural expectation of the time was much more oriented towards, um, well, I, to, to use a modern phrase, uh, modern phrase, being a family man. You were know, a family man. That was your essential identity. So taking care of your family and having good relationships, being gentle and patient with your children because you're teaching them to work alongside them, alongside you, and teaching them adult skills. And so that changed dramatically after the Industrial Revolution. Work was taken out of the home. So you no longer had husbands working side by side with their wives and children, uh, people they loved. Mm -hmm. um, instead, they were working in competition, you know, as an individual, in competition with other men. And that's when you see the language start to change. People didn't like the change they were seeing because they were seeing that men were kind of losing their, that caretaking mentality. They would become. It, it seemed that in the commercial workplace, you needed to be aggressive and assertive, and l look out for number one. 
you know, and acquisitive, and all that matters is the bottom line. And this is the language of the day. You start to see people criticizing men. I mean, the, the idea that masculinity is toxic really starts here because they start saying, look at our men. They're, they're becoming worse. Our men are, mm-hmm. are acquiring um, characteristics that we don't like. And uh, secularization was ha- happening at that time, too, because along with the Industrial Revolution, they developed a very large public square, right? So a public sphere of factories and, and industry and banks and academia and government. And, and this large public sphere, b- people began to say, well, that should be secular. That should be value-free. I mean, that's what we hear today, right? Mm-hmm. Don't bring your personal values <laughs> into the public square. You know, keep them in the private realm. That's when that happened. And so men who were getting their education and, and, and working in the public square were becoming secular before women were. And so they were also becoming less committed to the biblical ethic. Um, and so that, that also started to affect concepts of masculinity because people began to say, well, that, you know, that men were, men were just naturally more prone to sin and vice. <laughs> and of course, many of the more traditional vices, male vices were also increasing at the time. Um, since men were becoming more secular, there was a lot more drinking, gambling, fighting, gangs, prostitution. And that explains why there was a huge growth of reform movements in the 19th century to address all of these problems, especially young men, because they were coming in from the, from the countryside and leaving behind a accountability structures like their family, their church, their village. And they were coming to the cities and, you know, they were much more prone to these, you know, the, the vices that were available in the city. And so that's why you had before uh, uh, movements, well, the temperance movement. I'll give you one fact to sort of hang this on. In 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. So drinking actually was a real problem. Public mm-hmm. drunkenness had become a problem. So there was a reason that there was a temperance movement. Yeah. And there were movements to, against prostitution. There were movements against uh, gambling and uh, cockfighting. And, um, you know, and, uh, and of course, the, and the abolition movement against slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the problem is, of course, that most of these were... Well, male vices. Uh, here's how one historian puts it. She says, There was little doubt as to the sex of the slave masters, the tavern keepers, the, uh, the clients at the brothel, um, the, the seducers, the, the drunkards. Mm-hmm. In other words, the language, that grew, the language grew even more negative about masculinity during the reform movements. So even though they, these reform movements did a lot of good, they also had some negative baggage, which is they actually increased the negative descriptions of the, of the male character. So you, you really can't deal with toxic masculinity unless you go all the way back there. And then um, and I have a whole chapter on Darwinism as well, mm. <laughs> because that, that, that sort of clinched it. Yeah. Darwin taught people that, you know, up until then, and this is the ancient Greeks, people had thought, the goal in life is to master your lower your lower impulses, you know, by the higher capacities of, of moral will and rationality. Yeah. Darwin said no. He turned it upside down. He said no. Your, your true self is the beast within. You know, mm-hmm. your animal nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the animal nature has developed through the struggle for survival, um, and so the one the the ones who won out 
with the ones who are tough and um, dominant and even predatory. Yeah. And so the it, Darwin helped to valorize a very um, a definition of masculinity that focused on the biological impulses for lust and control and dominance. So these toxic concepts of masculinity have a long history, and we need to know that. You know, we cannot really deal with something adequately unless we know where it came from and how it developed. So, so that's why I think we, we need to know some of this history of where these negative concepts of masculinity came from. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's hard to find anyone talk, who, anyone who's speaking on masculinity and men's issues today. It's hard to find anyone who tries to define masculinity without uh, using biological uh, evolution to describe it. They resort to, well, you know, men were hunter-gatherers, and so that's why today men are more aggressive, or, uh, you know, and this and that. They always, they always result to you know, an, an evolutionary story. And so that makes a lot of sense today that, that Darwinism has had such a large impact on, um, on defining masculinity. And that does seem to be a really difficult task. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about your book, a big light bulb moment for me was how, uh, you showed how the definition and understanding of masculinity was demoralized through the industrial revolution. And what you meant by that, uh, not demoralized in the sense of, uh, uh, discouraged, but in the sense of the morality taken out of it, how previously masculinity was under, understood primarily in moral terms, but then once men went off to uh, give their lives over to business and career, it was changed into uh, sort of uh, temperament terms, aggressiveness, assertiveness, competitiveness, and, and so on. Um, so can you describe that demoralization of the understanding of masculinity and then how that affected the ongoing relationship in the, in, you know, in the history after that between men and women. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you asked. That's a good question. Um, so it was in the night today we're used to the double standard, right? We kind of used to the idea that um, like in a dating relationship, it's a woman who's supposed to hold the line. <laughs> I asked my students if that's still the case, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I saw a questionnaire recently that that's, two of the questions were women are more pure than men and women are more uh, more morally sensitive, I think is what they put it, than men. And I thought, you, you even got those questions in, in a questionnaire? Mm. And this just popped up recently, um, you know, through Twitter or some social media, some questionnaire. Anyway, where did we get the double standard? I, I was shocked to discover how recent that is. That's the 19th century. Before that, men were thought to be morally superior. Mm -hmm. Since the time of the ancient Greeks, the insight between right and wrong was thought to be a rational insight. And since men are more rational, were thought to be more rational, um, therefore men were more moral. And so from the t time of the ancients, people thought men were the ones who were more masculine, more moral, more spiritual. Uh, in fact, the word virtue, do you know the Latin root of virtue? The mm -hmm. word virtue, V-I-R, mm -hmm. it's, it's Latin for man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> virtue comes from the word man. And so it, was, it originally had connotations of uh, manly strength and honor. 
It's like the word virile, V-I-R, mm-hmm. virile. So, yeah, virtue was not a feminine quality. It was thought to be a masculine quality. And this all changed after the Industrial Revolution because as men went out to the, to the workplace, you know, to the offices and factories, which were becoming secularized, Many people thought that their um, that their men were were becoming, like you said, more sort of aggressive, competitive, and taking on traits that 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 were not suitable for coming. When they came home at night, these were not the traits that you want as a f- husband and father. Um, and so, for the first time, women for the first time ever in human history, women began to be said to be the more moral, more spiritually sensitive than men. This was completely new. This had never happened before in all of human history. Uh, that because, uh, this, because the public realm was supposed to be value-free, values had to be cultivated in the private realm, at home, in church. And who's at home? <laughs> women. So women were, in a sense, tasked with being the moral guardians of society. And when the men came home at night, they were supposed to reform and remoralize their men. Men were supposed to come home and and be reformed by their morally superior wives. And so uh, that that became the, um, it's sometimes called the doctrine of separate spheres. You know, men work in one sphere, the public sphere, and then they come home at night and the women have to, you know, teach them again how to be moral and gentle and so on uh, with their family. Um, but what? But notice what's happening. Uh, oh, and, and I should add, we talked about the reform movements. <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> I'm not sure what this is. I think I, maybe an allergy happened because I was up all night yeah. coughing. <laughs> That's fine. So we might want to cut this part. <clears throat> I've been. I've not been having this. It just started last night. <clears throat> We talked about the reform movements of the 19th century. Well, most of them were led were were, were led by women, um, and, and so there was a kind of a male female dimension there too. That women were leading the reform against what what I call uh, I earlier I said were traditionally male vices. So again, women were seen as the moral reformers of society. Well, but what did that mean for men? That men men were being let off the hook. You know, mm-hmm. If you're tasking women with being the moral guardians of society, then what is what? What are you saying about men? You're essentially saying they they are no longer to be trusted to be moral leaders in the home and in society. Um, there's one um, historian. There, there are not very many books on the history of masculinity, by the way. This is another reason that, that my book has a lot of material that nobody knows. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't know about that sociological literature I talked about earlier, but they don't know this history either because be, because of feminism, we have whole libraries of books about women and women's history. I found like a smattering of books about men and the history of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of my books puts it, it repeatedly used the phrase it was letting men off the hook. Yeah. You know, the more you treated women as morally superior, the more you let men off the hook. And so the reform movements, for example, like the temperance movement was largely women. Well, it's churches and women. It was led by churches and women. Um, but the uh, illustrations of the day. Uh, I found several of them. It's fun. To, by the book, why, by the way, the book has several historical illustrations to kind of mm-hmm. bring this to life, which, which helps. 
But I found several illustrations of the temperance movement where it's women standing outside the saloon, you know, demanding that their men come back home, you know, to the family hearth where they belong and stop spending the family money on alcohol. And and the illustrations would show the women praying and then it'd show the men in the saloon with their arms crossed, you know, looking angry and hostile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what what was that saying? That was saying that it's up to women to to moralize men, and that men are not naturally moral. That, men, like I said earlier, men are more naturally prone to sin and vice, especially when it comes to things like sex and alcohol. Mm-hmm. So that's what I meant by the demoralization of the masculine character. The I the ideal for masculinity was losing the uh, its moral character, losing the idea that, that no, men are e- called and equipped to be the moral leaders both in the home and in the broader society. Yeah. And so we'll have to jump ahead several decades to get to today. But today now we're dealing with these arguments over toxic masculinity and men constantly being told that they have to uh, rid themselves of all their toxic masculinity, even in uh, very manly products such as Gillette razors. You know, they're talking about how um, how their men need to do better whenever they buy their razors. What's the problem with this idea of toxic masculinity? Well, the, the, there's several. So let me jump on one of them. One of them is it ignores the fact that men are actually doing worse today than they have in the past. Um, boys are falling behind at all levels of education from kindergarten on you know even in kindergarten girls are more verbal they have better fine motor control so they can manipulate the crayon or the scissors Mm -hmm. so in kindergarten already boys are starting to fall behind and feel like you know i can't do this this is not for me um in high school in college colleges now are average 60 percent women 40 percent men wow yeah that's the average um some have gone up to seventy thirty, and uh, places like Harvard, there've been uh, there've been articles on this in in the news. Places like Harvard are quietly starting affirmative action programs for men to get more men because wow. they don't want to go beyond sixty forty. That's that's uh, when I started at Houston Christian, we were seventy thirty, seventy percent female, thirty percent men. So they started a football program to bring in more men, and uh, and an engineering program <laughs> hmm. to attract more men. Wow. Um, yeah, more women than men uh, going to graduate uh, graduating from graduate school. More women than men, even in the professional schools like um, law school, veterinary school. So education, uh, we masses of amounts of money have gone into creating curriculum that that will be supportive of girls and programs that are supportive of girls. And scholarships, what was it, there's something, there's at least four times as many scholarships for, for women as for men. And, and that's great. You know, we don't want to say that's bad. Women are moving ahead. They're taking advantage of these things. Remember, it was really mid-20th century when women were first accepted into a lot of uh, mm-hmm. universities. Mm-hmm. So they've made a, a astonishing progress. And that's good. We need to support that. But... The mentality has done needs to shift. We need we now need to help boys, and and a lot of feminist groups, for example, will not pay attention to that. They say no, no, no. Uh, as long as men are still ending up as the, the main, the, the CEOs, the presidents, you know, the the owners of companies, the tech moguls, um, the Hollywood producers, we don't have to help men. 
Well, actually, that's like, you know, at most 10% of men end up in those higher echelons. On average, men are doing worse than in the past and worse than women in a lot of places, not just education, but, um, you know, there are more, more male suicides, more suicide, more crime, more victims of crime, more drug addiction, more alcohol addiction. Um, men are actually falling behind in the workplace. We are at, uh, sociologists have found that we are at depression era levels of unemployment. Nobody knows that because most of these men have stopped looking for work, and so they're not showing up in the unemployment statistics. Mm. Depression era levels of unemployment and male um, life expectancy has gone down uh, over the last four years or so, uh, while women's has stayed the same. So it's not just a human thing, just male life expectancy has gone down. Uh, there was a, a science magazine that said, you know, the, the highest, uh, what was it, the highest predictor of, uh, of early death now is being male. <laughs> wow. uh, um, so, uh, so for starters, I think we need to recognize that, that boys, boys and men are, have, are in trouble now. And we need to figure out how we can encourage them. We need to start having programs to encourage men uh, from kindergarten, you know, all the way up. We need ways to support men. Um, The the idea that men are toxic has made many people uh, hostile to the idea that we should support men. But wait, Mm. if even if even if you think men are hostile, you should support programs for men because how are we going to? you know, educate them out of hostile behavior. So we need to recognize now that men are in trouble. Yeah. Let me give you a stat on this. uh, This is from the book, so you might remember it, but it was 2016, 2016, 46% of men, 46% of men agreed that society now seems to punish men just for being men. So whether you agree with that or not, that's a yeah. lot of men who think society now punishes them just for being men. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I personally know a lot of guys who feel that way and who think that uh, everywhere they turn in our culture right now, they're being presented as a danger, being presented as worthless or being presented as a bad guy. Um, you know, even even in movies now today, it's it's uh, it's a popular trope to know that you can judge what's going to happen in a movie just based off the poster. If there's a woman, if there's a man, woman's going to be the hero, man's going to be the villain. Just, uh, you know, nearly every time, with few exceptions lately. There's been these, these popular move, little movements and uh, speakers who have come up who they've been both, well, pretty much universally condemned by the secular culture. But then within, even within Christian circles, they've been both somewhat praised, but also pretty heavily criticized you know, be people like Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, um, uh, Jocko Willink, and others who have been reaching young men through their um, through their work. What do you think about this this movement? You know, in the last six to eight years, uh, reaching young men, and um, yeah, what do you, what do you think about it? The good, the bad. Yeah, um, I started my book. Uh, like, like chapter one, I start in chapter one with a survey that was done by a sociologist. Uh, you can tell I love to read the academic literature. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, a sociologist um, 
it, w- let me let me preface it by saying this has turned out to be the most controversial book I've written, and mm. I was surprised by that <laughs> because my last book was uh, Love Thy Body, Love yeah. Thy Body, <laughs> which which is on things like homosexuality and transgenderism. So yeah. I really thought that would be my most controversial book, um, but no, in the Christian world especially, this has been more controversial. Hmm. And the reason is, so, so, I, have, so I have these young um, Christian students. Um, the, the, the female students almost all identify as feminists, and they would get triggered anytime I said anything good about men. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd say, I'd say, you know, men are strong. Well, women are too. Well, yeah, yes, they are. <laughs> but men are physically stronger. You know, we need to acknowledge that. Um, and and then the men, like you just mentioned, uh, feel feel like the culture has been very negative toward them. Uh, I um, when I announced that I was, when I told my class I was writing a book on masculinity. One of my male students said he, he shot back immediately. What masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. <laughs> okay, that goes in the book <laughs> as an example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and I had my students. I even had my students telling you know the family members or whatever, telling their parents that we were doing. Uh, we we actually I had a class on the book. Um, this is how I get my feedback. I have I run a class on it. I have reading groups on it, and mm-hmm. um, which is great. Uh, as they would t- they would tell the family members they would, and invariably the first question would be whose side is she on. Like, whoa, you know, is she some male-bashing feminist or is she some reactionary conservative? <laughs> um, and I was like, I, I don't know if, if you noticed when you read the first chapter, I had to rewrite that first chapter multiple times to try to disarm both sides wow. <laughs> and to say, look, you know, as Christians, we're in the world, but not of it. And therefore, we should be able to to be objective. You know, we're not polemical on either side. We're looking for the biblical view of masculinity. And what helped me the most was this uh, survey that I I mentioned. This really helped disarm both sides. So there's a sociologist who, um, he's very famous, so he speaks all around the world. And so he started to do this uh, questionnaire to young men and women, to young, to to, uh, young teenagers and young adults. Um, And he said, uh, he would ask them two questions. Mm-hmm. First, he says, "What does it mean to be a good man?" You know, if somebody dies at the funeral, at the eulogy, they say uh, he was a good man. What does that mean? And men had no trouble answering that. They said, and I'll read it: honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy. <laughs> I kind of like that one. Stand up for the little guy. Be a provider, be a protector, be responsible, be generous, give to others, right? I mean, everybody knows. The sociologists would say to them, well, where'd you learn that? And they say, well, it's everywhere. It's just in the air we breathe. Mm-hmm. Or if they were in the West, they would often say, it's our, it's our Judeo, Judeo-Christian heritage. And then he would ask a follow-up question. He'd say, well, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young man would say, oh, no, no, that's completely different. And I'll read, the, I'll read their words again. That means be tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, play through pain, be competitive, get rich, get laid. 
In other words, a lot of the things that we associate with toxic masculinity, mm. a lot of the traits that we don't think are so good. And so there are two competing scripts for masculinity. And uh, so, so the people who would ask, you know, which side is she on? They would say, oh, okay, fine. You, you don't have to attack masculinity wholesale and you don't have to defend it wholesale. You can defend the good man and you can show what's wrong with this, the secular script of the, the real man. Right? Mm-hmm. When he said, what does it mean to be a good man? What does it mean to be a real man? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of use that throughout the whole book, in fact, uh, where, when I talk about you know, positive traits of masculinity, um, you know, the good man, which, uh, notice, these were, this was global. He's been talking to men in, in countries from Australia to Switzerland to you know, Ecuador. Yeah. Uh, he finds this everywhere. So what that means is men are made in God's image, and they do know what they're called to be. In fact, here's another uh, study. This was by an anthropologist. It was the first cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity. Um, David Gilmore. And what he found is every culture, uh, what they expect of men boils down to what he calls the the three Ps. Provide, protect, protect, and procreate. That is, Mm -hmm. raise a family. Be a father. He's everywhere. No matter what their concept of masculinity, if it's more rough, tough, and aggressive, or if it's more you know, gentle, because some of the South Sea Islands that he studied, you know, the concepts of masculinity were not that different from, from femininity. But they all expected men to do the three Ps. So men mm-hmm. are made in God's image. They do know what the good man is. They do know the three Ps that are expected of them. But our culture tends to press upon them a more secularized definition of manhood, um, which, which you know, we can agree that some of those, some of those elements are more toxic, or or more harmful, or more dangerous, or whatever. So we can, as Christians, we don't have to either totally defend or totally attack. We can acknowledge that there's a secular script for masculinity that is not biblical. Mm-hmm. At the same time that we support and encourage and teach men what the biblical script is of the the good man. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that the whenever I consider these uh, guys who are really popular with young men today, and 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 all guys that I've learned a lot from and, and listened to a lot, I think just the number one thing that they're doing right that we could learn from is that they're just approaching guys and they're saying, "Hey, it's okay to be you." Right? They're saying it's okay to be a guy uh, and to enjoy guy things. Like it's okay, you don't feel bad about that. Uh, I think that's the number one thing that, that like that they're doing that, that the church could do better in. Uh, and then they push a lot of the, the same virtues of, or a lot of the same virtues that you describe in the good man. The problem is that they don't have a cohesive worldview that holds it all together. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, that defines what uh, each one of those qualities mean. Um, and then gives men uh, the duty to really live them out beyond just, you know, cultural expectations or, uh, or, or personal pride, uh, rather yeah. than duty received from uh, from God. Yeah, I, I did have to start again. I had to put this right at the beginning of the book um, that there are differences between men and women, and we need to affirm those because they're given us. They're they're created by God, and mm-hmm. let's start with just the biology. Biology is pretty fundamental. <laughs> men are bigger, stronger, faster. 
they have more fast twitch muscles. I had to learn that word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fast twitch muscles, which means they can react more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, and it's testosterone. I mean, God gave them that. And it makes them more aggressive and competitive. And as, as a church, we do need to affirm the good things of masculinity. And look, like I said, this, this is not culture, cultural. This is biological. These are basics. Uh, um, and, and, of course, women have more estrogen and they, they have children. So in every culture, um, women are more likely to be the ones who have work that's close to home that can be combined with raising children. Um, by, the, uh, by the way, you mentioned um, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson said something really good about women, too, by the way. He said it. I've seen it a couple of times. He's tried to... Um, Many times people define the differences between men and women in terms of what men can do and women can't. Well, that makes women sound negative. You know, men mm. are stronger, women are weaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he counters that with, well, women's, women's abilities are also a strength. He said, do you, can, do you know what kind of strength of character it takes to take care of an infant? That you have to be on call 24 hours a day willing to be interrupted no matter what you're doing. You have to have incredible emotional sensitivity to to, to discern what the, the infant needs, you know, because it's nonverbal. <laughs> you have to have an incredible ability, mm. you know, a caretaking kind of abilities. He goes on and on about these are strengths. These are not weaknesses. Mm. And so I, I actually borrowed some of that from him in, in my book and said, women have their own strengths. These yep. are strengths, <laughs> not de- debilitations. You know, they're, they're not uh, deficits. So I think it's very important that when we talk about uh, the differences between men and women, we don't talk about it in terms of, you know, men are stronger, women are weaker. That's why feminists got allergic to that kind of language is because it always sounded like women got the short end of the stick. So we have to define women's strengths as also strengths of character. Um, but in terms of male strengths, I, do, I agree that right now, um, well, speaking of feminism, I mean, that's one reason that women try so hard to be as, as good as men, right? Mm. It's because the male strengths have often been held up as superior. As soon as you say there are differences, one is held up as superior. I mean, historically, traditionally, that's what happens. So it's very important that we hold up both sets of traits as uh, as as positive, and uh, of course, in terms of character traits, personality traits, there's there's bell curves, right? There's a bell curve for for, yeah. for every personality trait. There's a bell curve, and the male and female bell, bell curves overlap quite closely. We actually, in terms of personality traits, we're more, more much more similar than we are different. But in insofar as men are different, um, we need to treat those as positive, and if we don't acknowledge them. We won't put moral boundaries on them. That's the danger. If mm. I, I did read, there are some feminists who will say, I read it just the other day in an article. Well, if women worked out, they would be as strong as men. No, they will never be as strong as men. You mm. know, I mean, men just have more upper body strength, yeah. more muscle mass. What, what was 75% more muscle mass, 90% greater strength? No matter how much you work out, a woman's not, not going to be on average, you know, the same as a man. Yeah. Um, but if we and if we don't acknowledge that, we won't put the moral restraints on it that we need to, because if men are stronger, that means they can also they can be more dangerous in, in cases of abuse or assault or whatever. So we have to make sure that we acknowledge it as good and put moral restraints on it. 
and and not not be so drawn into the well we're both the same we're both you know men and women the same they're identical they're not identical no. you know who and you know who knows that is people who work with assault, victims of sexual assault or or domestic violence there's a there's a book by a woman who's very liberal um it's it's called um the case against the sexual revolution if you oh, haven't yeah. seen it yet mm-hmm. you'd like it louise perry so she's yes. she's well known as a uh, as a leftist writer, until she started working at a rape crisis center. And then she had to acknowledge, you have to acknowledge the differences between men and women, because when men are stronger, and we need to say, yes, that's stronger, so that we can channel that strength in a moral way that will benefit society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it really is tragic that, um, once again, the, the culture today only pushes women to try to take the place of or, 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 or achieve male virtues um, because then it diminishes or, or overshadows female virtues. Uh, once again, you go back to pop culture, you see this in movies today all the time now where you have these women who are you know taking on uh, the, the role in a film that a male normally would is that you're losing out on, on these uh, uniquely strong female characters um, and, and, and stories of strong female characters that you could have told otherwise. I think the one of the biggest ex- examples that I can think of is uh, if you compare the original Star Wars trilogy to the newest one made by Disney. And, um, you know, all of the male protagonists were replaced with female protagonists. And uh, Princess Leia in the original trilogy is turned into General Organa. Uh, they literally start calling her general. She's the same person, but now she's this military leader. And uh, because once again, she has to take a man's place, you know, and every, in all three movies, I was thinking, isn't this a step down? Like maybe I got my <laughs> fantasy hierarchy wrong, but isn't a princess higher than a general? Isn't this a step down for this character? Uh, and it's tragic because it, it is everything that made her Leia is one of the, the best, strongest, coolest, awesome, you know, female characters in all of American uh, film history. And, and she loses all of it in the new trilogy where she's General Organa. Um, and it, it's really tragic. Uh, you know, in, in the third one where she dies, a character says Good, goodbye, princess. It was, a, it was the first time in all three that she had been called princess again. And it made me tear up. You know, because what could have been what they did to this character and uh, what they do to the way the girls think about themselves and think that they can't be great girls unless they try to be great boys, (laughs) you know? Yeah, um, it's 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 the it's the topic of my earlier book, Love Thy Body. But I do think it's part of partly what's behind the transgender movement, because transgenderism has traditionally been a male phenomenon. Back when it was called transsexualism, mm-hmm. it was almost exclusively a male phenomenon. And now we have young teenage girls who are teenagers, adolescents who are defining themselves as boys. And you know, what's, what's going wrong with our girls? Yeah. It, it, the, and it's increased dramatically. When I give my lecture on this, I show a graph. So, you know, it goes, it's kind of flat lines and then it goes up in a steep cliff showing the incredibly steep rise in girls claiming a transgender identity. Uh, so it's, uh, we used to have one transgender clinic in, um, in all of America, now we have hundreds. Mm. So it does raise the question, what is happening to our girls and why do they think it's superior to be a boy? Why do they think, you know, why do they ha- harbor such hostility to their own sex, their own bodies? 
that, uh, and I can't help but think it's partly because the uh, masculine virtues and masculine character traits have been held up as superior, not only by men, but by women. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I certainly, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I wanted to be like my dad. I, you know, it was very obvious to me who, who had, <laughs> who had clout in our family. Mm. It was, it was my dad. Um, so I, I, I aspired to be, you know, to, to take on masculine traits because I thought that was, they were better. Well, uh, you, you might know this from reading the book, but I did go through a feminist phase where, for several mm-hmm. years where, where I read all the feminist books because I, I was caught up in that as well. And the, den- the denigration of what it means to be female, you know, it didn't change until I had a kid. <laughs> my, hmm. my first son, <laughs> that's when I started rethinking. Wow. You know, uh, I, I started rethinking what does, it be, what does it mean to have, you know, feminine virtues? You know, what does it mean to have a, a child? What does it mean to be a mother? Because I had only negative, I had only negative views on all of these things from reading feminist literature. Wow. Um, you know, feminist literature treats having a child as a, as a, you know, as a negative thing. As a, you know, it's it, it takes you away from all the other things that you could be doing. Well, yeah, but what does it give you? I mean, having yeah. kids has been the best thing in my life. Now, yeah. in in hindsight, it's been, it's been the the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love being a mother, and we homeschooled our kids even because you know mm. we liked it so much. We wanted them home all the time. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. So it's, it, it. I, I think there's a bit of a change now in in some women, but, um, but I do wonder if that's part of what's behind the transgender movement, um, because you know it's, be, partly because transsexualism used to start when you were very young. It was it was a. You, I, I tell the story in Love They Body of a young boy who, you know, before he was even walking, you know, people said, this kid's more like a girl than a boy. Um, and, th- and that was the more the t- traditional um, transsexualism. But now it's um, girls who seem to be very happy being girls when they were young. And it's only when they hit adolescence and teen years that mm-hmm. they suddenly decide they're really boys. Yeah. So that does suggest a cultural influence or a social contagion that's happening. Um, yeah. And, you know, that, that something is hitting them that they decide they don't want to be a girl after all. So, so, so I, I think your, your point is well taken. We need to make sure we understand what's good about masculinity. And today we also really need to uh, focus also what's, what's good about femininity. Yeah. Yeah, appreciate each male and female being made in the image of God and uh, celebrating each of them as they are. We, uh, we, we need to wrap up. We are getting close to the end of our time. And so before we go, uh, just what would be your answer to how can the church and uh, how, can, how can Christians start serving men better uh, in the future? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a big question. Well, I'd, for, for one thing, um, one of the side effects of a more, you know, the secular script for masculinity you know the one that I read, the, the real man, right, as opposed to the good man, is that m- a lot of men don't have male friendships, and so one of the most important things the church could do is is to have men's groups, and men's groups that go beyond just you know having a barbecue, but you know in depth, real friendships, um, loneliness. There've been studies of loneliness. There's a, there's a whole book giving a study of loneliness and how it contributes to early death. You know, the emotional impact of loneliness uh, contributes to a whole host of diseases. 
But men have not been encouraged to have like intensely close friendships, just friendships with men. Um, yeah. I think what you were saying earlier about it's okay to be a guy, <laughs> it's okay to be yourself. Um, I would like to see a lot more ministry to men that was, um, you know, uh, that was, um, that focuses on the whole man too, because I have had a lot of students say, oh yeah, there's some men's groups at my church, but they focus on hunting and <laughs> fishing and, you know, they, they mm. kind of overemphasize the masculine aspects. And, you know, one of my students, an IT person, he said, I don't, I, I don't connect with that. I'm an IT person. Or another uh, person who's a writer, you know, or, or a psychologist. Uh, you know, I'm a psychologist. I care about the inner life. I'm not into the sort of rough, tough external masculinity. So I think even mm -hmm. our men's groups, when we do start them, we kind of overemphasize, from what I'm hearing at least, because I'm not, I'm not a man, so I haven't been in these groups, but mm -hmm. what I'm hearing from a lot of mm -hmm. my students is that they don't like these men's groups when they almost go the other extreme, you know, when they almost go to the extreme yeah. of uh, emphasizing ma masculinity. Um, even at the high school level, uh, one of my students told me about a, a, high, a Christian high school where they started a, a, you know, a men's group, Christian manhood, that's what they call it, Christian manhood group. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the student who helped was, was um, spearheading it was from a military family, and he was focusing only on sort of military-type virtues you know, of, of, of toughness and courage and strength. And the student wanted to be, he wanted to be, um, yes, he was, he was studying psychology. And he said, no, I, I, don't, I don't fit in that group. <laughs> So I've heard from a mm -hmm. lot of my students that they don't fit into their church's men's groups. So I think we need to sort of rethink the manhood, the men's groups we do have. Are we ministering to the whole person? You know, don't just yeah. react against the culture and, and sort of overemphasize one aspect of masculinity because you, you, lose a lot of the, you lose a lot of men who don't fit the John Wayne masculinity stereotype. Mm. So, but I think the church, yeah. the most important thing the church can do besides preaching on manhood from the from the pulpit of course is having men's groups where you know peers all the sociological psychological data shows that we benefit more from being in a peer group you know the aa model you know this uh, alcoholics mm -hmm. anonymous model the celebrate mm -hmm. recovery model the idea that sitting around with your peers and discussing things is a is is the best way forward and uh, there's uh, in my book, you haven't gotten to that part yet, but when I get into the <laughs> section on domestic violence, th there have yeah. been some pioneering organizations that have found that even there, the AA model works best. Get abusive men together mm. and talk to each other. <laughs> you know, I mean, wow. most of these men's, men are in um, counseling. It's court-ordered counseling, right? If you, if you are actually abusive, mm -hmm. you're usually not seeking out counseling unless the court orders you but they have there's been a couple of um pioneering groups now that have found they get much better uh results from having a peer group with other men these yeah. other men can see through you when you <laughs> it's like aa they can see through you <laughs> when, yeah. when you're um not being honest yeah. so i i think uh i think that's one of the most important things that men can do and secondly the church needs to stress fatherhood Toxic masculinity, you know, the, t the toxic traits that we, you know, the, the culture doesn't like are certainly largely a product of boys growing up without fathers, like crime yeah. being the primary example. You yeah. know, I used to work for Prison Fellowship, which is an international Christian, Christian ministry, 
Um, and we knew, we knew from the, st- the stats that the majority of the men sitting in prison are father- come from fatherless homes, especially violent crime. You know, they're coming from fatherless homes, and I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's violent prisoners, you know, 70 to 80% of, of violent prisoners are from fatherless homes. Uh, most of the kids who are having trouble in school, dropping out of school, are from fatherless homes. Mm-hmm. So we know very, there's no doubt about it. I mean, this is not a left-right issue anymore. It used to be. But several, a, a couple decades ago, I, I still remember when the left finally started acknowledging that, uh, yeah, yeah, growing up with two parents does have a better outcome. Well, yeah. well okay. <laughs> yeah. so, the, the, so the second thing is, so, so get men together. The second thing is really focus on uh, training fathers to be better fathers and reaching out to fatherless kids. I think that should be a primary a mission a goal of every church is to reach out to fatherless kids. Mm. And, you know, provide substitute fathers. There have been some examples. I gave some examples in the book. Um, there was there was a really fun one. Um, th- there had been a shooting at a school, <laughs> and a bunch of fathers came in <laughs> and just started walking down the halls <laughs> and being a presence, just being a presence. Mm-hmm. Said, you know, we've had too much violence in our schools. Yeah. And uh, I think I heard that father- story. <laughs> yeah. So that was a cool story. Um, yeah. We, but uh, I think this church needs to start thinking more intentionally about how it ministers to men and and particularly how it trains fathers and how it reaches out to fatherless kids. Yeah, that's excellent. I agree with all those. We just started a uh, new men's and women's ministry at our church where uh, we're a pastor. And um, and in, our, in designing them, uh particularly on, on the men's side on the women's side i'm letting them you know take it and run with it and um and so on but on, on the men's side where i'm a little bit more hands-on we're uh we're making we're making all of our meetings together something that's uh very much activity-based so it's not just sitting in a circle talking about our feelings because everybody knows guys aren't really into that but we don't mind opening up whenever it's doing something together I think that's the key that just most people don't understand about guys is that guys can be open up and be vulnerable, but it's just not in that, that, that it has to be with, um, with another medium, right? They got to be doing an activity together, doing something together. And then that leads to building those relationships where they open up. So anyway, so it's very activity based, but then we're also, uh, ensuring that it reaches the, the guys who like the hunting and fishing and the guys who aren't into that. And so we're trying to be really creative and outside the box by constantly changing what we do for activity. So, um, you know, so we have plans to, we're going to go hiking. We have plans to, um, to do, you know, like, uh, you know, different, different types of things, but then also like, uh, going to, uh, we have this event downtown once a month called art walk where all the galleries are open for free and you can go walk around and enjoy the art. So we plan on doing that as well because our goal is to explore what it means for a man to be, uh, filled with the Holy spirit, uh, in all expressions of that masculinity and not just, you know, one narrowly cultured, heavily cultured way of viewing it. So that, that's, that's pretty cool because one of my graduate students who is a male and we were talking about this, he said, well, what a, he said, I, I'd like to go to an art museum. <laughs> he, yeah. he said that. So that's cool that you've got that on your list. Yeah. My <laughs> goal is to make, my goal is to do something that gets at least 
to the, I want to make sure that all the guys feel a little bit uncomfortable at at least one of the meetings. <laughs> yeah. So if it's the artsy guys, I'm going to feel a little uncomfortable throwing a football. If it's the football guys, I want to feel a little uncomfortable walking around an art museum. Because I think that whenever <laughs> we step into those things, you know, along with God, that, uh, that he grows us and he, he, he shows us more about what it means to be a man than we knew before. What you should do, this is my suggestion. So what you should do is before you go to the art museum, <laughs> read Saving Leonardo because mm-hmm. it's about how worldviews shape the arts, you know, how, how philosophies shape the arts. And what I found with my students is um, I've had a lot of students who didn't necessarily think they liked the arts. <laughs> um, uh, when I was teaching homeschool high schoolers, one of the students kind of strode in, you know, sort of swaggered in and said, um, he didn't want to be there. His mother was making him sign up, right? Um, and he said, are you going to tell us how, why a pile of bricks can be called art? And I said, yes, I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, beca- and I do. I, I made a point of putting the pile of bricks in here. It, it was at, mm-hmm. at the Tate in, in London. Um, and, and explaining the worldview behind it, though. And yeah. I found that a lot of my students are much more interested in the arts if they see, oh, okay, so there's some ideas here. They're not just playing with colors, you know. They're not yeah. just painting pretty pictures. Um, they actually are influenced by a philosophy, by a worldview. And if you can detect the philosophy through the art, then it becomes much more intellectually interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, so I, I, I do get art students who find out, oh, wow, art's about, about a lot more. But I get far more students who are not artists because, you know, there are far fewer people actually who do like the arts. Yeah. But they uh, they learn to like the arts when they see oh the artists are actually engaged with the f- ideas of their day and so there's there's an intellectual component that will I, I would say especially men might be more attracted to that yeah no that's absolutely and, and you're correct that uh, I've always had uh, a felt drawn to the arts um, you know even though people usually look at me and just think of you think of me as a meathead I'm actually very into uh, music art film. And so on. Uh, but one of the things that really just uh, drew that out of me was reading books like Schaefer's um, How Should We Then Live? And, uh, and and talking about the worldviews behind art and so on. And so that's a great idea. And I have Saving Leonardo. It's one of the ones uh, that I have, but I haven't read yet. So perfect reason to read it and then share with the guys. But we have gone well over our time. <laughs> so I just want to thank you for spending the time to be with us here on filter today once again the book that we talked about along with a lot of other things but the book we talked about is the toxic war on masculinity by nancy piercy uh i'll have it linked in the show notes that you guys can go and pre-order it and get your copy i highly highly recommend it and so once again nancy just want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today thanks so much for having me i i've enjoyed talking with you thanks for listening I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.